0: Good morning. It is so good to be with you. Uh, I bring you greetings from Richmond, Virginia and from the soon-to-be-formed River City Baptist Church. This is a church plant that is in the Pillar Network, so we are among this uh, family of sister churches uh, that and are grateful not only to be in the same network as Emmanuel, but I've had the honor of getting to know alex and zach over the past several months and just love what the lord is doing here Um, i'm good friends with with aaron Menikoff and ed moore uh, which i think are some names that you know uh, brothers that have come and brought god's word to you on a few occasions and so it's fun to be um, in a room of mostly strangers but knowing that in reality this is actually family and um, I'm excited to think with you about God's Word um, in Colossians chapter one. So go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles there. Earlier, Alex read the, um, the, the passage there in Colossians one. He mentioned in passing, before he read that passage, he mentioned before you, you all, uh, we, we all confessed the faith together, that this is a practice that we even see in the New Testament. New Testament authors quoting uh, creeds or statements of faith that were in circulation at the time. And that's exactly what we encounter here in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Colossian church. Uh, This is an ancient creed or hymn um, of some sort, and it's found there in Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. We read it together earlier. Listen as I read again verse 18. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Now, as I understand, uh, last week you thought together about verses 15 to 17. This week we're going to be thinking about verse 18. And then next week you will consider verses 19 and 20. The progression in this ancient hymn, this, this Christ hymn, the progression is not complicated. Verses 15 to 17 are about the first creation, Verses 18 to 20 are about the new creation, and this is, in kind of shrink-wrapped, condensed version, the most impressive resume of any human in the history of the world. Jesus is, we see just in verse 18 alone, he is the king of the church, he is the catalyst of the new creation. And he is those things so that in all things he might be seen and known and adored and prized as preeminent. So, our three points arise very naturally out of this verse. Point number one, the king of the church. Point two, the pioneer of the new creation. And point three, the pinnacle of all things, the king of the church, the pioneer of the new creation, and the pinnacle of all things. First, the king of the church. Look at that first phrase in verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. To readers of the New Testament, this is a familiar metaphor, this anatomical image of the body of Christ made up of many different parts all working together in unison under the direction of the head. And it's not a complicated metaphor. We understand this implicitly. If your brain, that, that your head is malfunctioning, that's going to have downstream effects, as it were. Your your body will not receive the direction or the nourishment or the sustenance it needs. And the same is true when it comes to the church, the body of Christ who is the head. There is debate in scholarly circles about the meaning of this Greek word head. Does it mean authority over or does it mean the source of? And here is an example where uh, I should first say primarily when you look at the way it's used in the New Testament, Christ as the head means he is the authority over. And headship has to do with authority, loving, gentle, sacrificial authority. Here, though... It means clearly both. We don't have to force a distinction, a disjunction where there is not one. Jesus is the leader of the church. He's the director, the governor, the president, the authority over the church, but he also is the source of the church's life, the one who nourishes and sustains the church. This is actually one of the New Testament's rare references to the universal church, all Christians everywhere. Now, I say rare because actually over 90% of the time, and maybe when you read the Bible, you assume the opposite, but over 90% of the time, when the word church shows up in your Bible, it is referring not to all believers everywhere scattered across time and space, but rather specifically to a local family a local body of believers in covenant with one another. But again, this is not an either or. Just because Paul's vantage point here in verse 18 is kind of zoomed out as he surveys and beholds Christ's supremacy over all things, there is an implied argument from the greater to the lesser. If Christ reigns over the church global, or over the church in Asia, we might say, you know, we use the term in that more universal sense, that regional sense, if that's true, then how much more is it true that he is sovereign over every particular outpost of his kingdom? If he reigns over the church global, how much more ought he be preeminent over the church in Winston-Salem, Emmanuel Church of Winston-Salem. This is one reason, by the way, why something that your pastors like to talk about a lot-church polity, church gov- government structure-is so intensely important and practical. One way to evaluate the health of a church's structure. One way to evaluate the health of a church's polity is to simply ask the question, how well does it protect and preserve Christ's supremacy as head of the church? If his headship and supremacy is like the diamond on a wedding ring, the most important thing, your polity is like the prongs which exists to both guard that diamond and display it to the watching world. The pastors here are most fundamentally sheep. Alex may have the title senior pastor, but the senior senior pastor of this church is King Jesus. Uh, these pastors are lead Sheep. They are only faithful insofar as they are submitted to Jesus and His Word, and you, members, are only faithful insofar as you are submitting to Jesus and His Word. But it's not enough to get it right on paper in a confession of faith that can be found on a website. Many gospel-affirming churches... Formally operate as if Jesus has ultimate authority, but functionally, the buck stops somewhere else. Sometimes it's the members who kind of usurp the role of Jesus in churches that run like pure, unbridled democracies. Other times, the elders or the deacons, in certain cases, usurp his role in churches that run like oligarchies. That's a fancy word you've probably forgotten from high school, but it means the rule of the few. Other churches, there's a single pastor who usurps the role of Christ in churches that function like monarchies. But at Emmanuel, you rightly see that the New Testament's pattern for church life is actually a mixed government. Part democracy, that's the rule of the whole. Part oligarchy, that's the rule of the few. You're led by a plurality of elders. And part monarchy, that is the rule of one. And his name is not Alex de Prima, it is Jesus Christ. When it comes to the people of God, Jesus is not on a committee. He's not campaigning for re-election as if his position depends on the latest polls. No, Jesus inhabits the place of the head. That is the place of central command. He's not sitting at a round table next to some other spiritual gurus and trying to figure out the best way for the church to survive in the 20th century. No, he is sitting alone on a throne And there's only seating for one. He alone is the head of the body, the church. And that ought to be expressed in your polity and in your practice. We talk of counting heads in everyday life, right, as a way and shorthand of referring to counting persons, Because we intuitively understand that to count a head is to count a person. The head represents the whole. Christ, therefore, represents the whole church. He speaks for the church. But what's amazing is that he also lets the church speak for him. I mean, it kind of messes with the metaphor a little bit, but It makes sense to us that the head speaks for the body, but do you know that the body is also called to speak for the head? That you, Emmanuel, are supposed to live in such a way that you are constantly speaking true things about your head to the watching world. And back to what I was saying about church structure and church polity, in your practices of membership and discipline, you are corporately, collectively, publicly, formally speaking on heaven's behalf about who does and does not belong to King Jesus. That's what church membership is. It's not making someone a Christian. It is affirming that someone is a Christian. Likewise, church discipline is not making someone a non-Christian. It's removing that affirmation and saying that we can no longer, in good conscience with credibility, continue affirming their profession of faith. We're not saying they're going to hell. We're saying that we can no longer with confidence say they're going to heaven. When you bring someone into membership, you, the body, are speaking for the head by saying, this person is with Jesus. Another application here is we think about this image of the head and the body. There's only one head. Remember I said there's only one throne? It's not a committee. It's not a couch. It is a singular throne the church, in other words, is not a multi-headed entity. And we have a word for multi-headed entity. It's monsters, right? The, the church doesn't have multiple heads. There's only one head, which means that there ought to be a corresponding unity among the body. Jesus said something about this in John 10 when he was speaking of being the good shepherd. He, he talked about how there is one flock because there is one ultimate shepherd. So there's, there should be an expression of unity. We should unify under the head. Listen, the world, though, has no trouble understanding unity among people who are the same. And the world has no trouble understanding diversity among people who are different. But what the world cannot understand, what they cannot explain is unity among those who have no natural reason to be unified. This is the kind of diverse unity, this multi-generational unity, Jesus bringing together people from all kinds of backgrounds and temperaments and personalities and ethnicities and classes and experiences. And that ability... To bring together people, unified people, from such a breadth of background, says something about the greatness of that leader. Think about it like this. John John Piper, in his book, Bloodlines, makes this insightful observation. Quote, "...the strength and wisdom of a leader is magnified in proportion to the diversity of people." he can inspire to follow him with joy. I'm going to reread that because I know it's a bit of a mouthful. But ponder ponder this observation. The strength and wisdom of a leader is magnified in proportion to the diversity of people he can inspire to follow him with joy. Piper goes on to explain, if you can lead only a uniform group of people... Your leadership qualities are not as great as they would be if you could win a following from a very diverse people. This shows how incredible Jesus, the head, is. The startling differences among us reflect the singular greatness of our head. Here's how Paul puts it to the Ephesians in chapter 3.10. He says that God's intent was that now Through the church, that's the vehicle for his glory, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Do you see what God is accomplishing in the life of a church like Emmanuel? It's not a little sideshow. It is something, a drama of cosmic significance. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were united to God and to one another. Angels did not long to look into Eden because it made sense to them. Of course, this they're going to get along. There's no sin in the world. They love God. They love one another. Not that startling. But when they launched their revolt, their unity was shattered. And in the person of Jesus, this is what we celebrate at Christmas. Christmas is not a sweet, sentimental, religious holiday. Christmas is the celebration of an invasion. God in Christ invaded this world to reconcile rebels back to himself and to one another. And it's a far more incredible story than Genesis 1 and 2. Your future is not merely a return to that original state. Because as I said, angels could understand Eden, two sinless humans, living in harmony with God and one another. But what angels can't grasp, what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, that angels long to look into, is when sinful humans, shattered humans, natural enemies, start loving God and one another again. So against the dark backdrop of the world here in Winston, Emmanuel, you are meant to shine To display God's brilliant majesty and might like fireworks in the night sky. One other practical way that the headship of Christ is evident in a church is by how it regulates or orders its corporate worship. I love your order of service, your liturgy. Because your liturgy, I don't know if you've, you've realized this, but, but when you look at this order of service, it makes crystal clear who is the head. The, think about the job of an ambassador. The, the job of an ambassador is not to set government policy. An ambassador who tried to set or revise government policy would be, very quickly be a former ambassador. No, the job of an ambassador is to faithfully apply the policy. And in a similar way as churches, we don't get to write the script for what goes on in the church meeting. We don't set the terms. We faithfully apply the orders that our king has given us about how he wants to be approached and worshipped. One uh, former pastor you may you may be familiar with named Ligon Duncan I think he helpfully summarizes what it is that the Bible instructs us to do when we gather and it all centers on the word of Christ we read his word we preach his word we pray his word we sing his word and in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper we see his word when you organize your services around the word of christ you make crystal clear who is in charge and whose voice matters most faith comes by hearing and hearing not by the word of alex or the word of matt but by the word of christ he is the king but the resume continues we've only looked at one little phrase the resume continues. Point two, he is the king of the church. And point two, he is the pioneer of the new creation. Look at that next phrase. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Remember, verses 15 to 17 are about the first creation. Verses 18, and 20, 18 to 20, new creation. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is the beginning. Is that an echo of anything else in your Bible? Well, you can turn to page 1 because the very first words of your Bible, Genesis 1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the first creation. Colossians 1, He is the beginning, not just of the first creation, but of a new creation, the spark of which was lit by his resurrection, which is why Paul then says he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In other words, the resurrection launched a new reality into the universe. In rising from the dead, Jesus was not just functioning as Savior and Lord and King, but also as pioneer, one who blazes a trail so that we who come behind him can experience what he has. We who come behind him can experience immortality and everlasting life. Now, why firstborn from the dead, though? I mean, if you're familiar with the life of Jesus, you know that even in his own ministry, he raised some people from the dead. I mean, what about Lazarus? Didn't he get raised before Jesus? Not in the same way. Lazarus was given new life with an old body. Jesus was the first to receive new life with a new body. Jesus was the first to be raised, never to die again. Never to deteriorate, to decay So when it says he is the firstborn from the dead, it means he is at the front of a train of saints who will experience resurrection life in glorified bodies fit for a resurrected earth. Now, this is important in context because the Colossians were being tempted by various false teachings, one of which, Paul tells us, was a body-denying heresy. An, a kind of over spiritualized, body denying heresy. Flip to Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to show you this. And the reason I want to show it to you is because he links this body denying heresy with a failure to hold tightly to Jesus as the head. Look at Colossians 2, starting in verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on, and here's that big word, asceticism. Asceticism, the, the denial of the body in order to attain spiritual, uh, spiritual health. Paul says, reject that teaching. That's disqualifying teaching. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on body-denying asceticism, And then he goes on to list some other things. Worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And then here is an echo from our passage, from our verse. Look at verse 19. And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. A similar heresy was alive and well at the time of Paul's writing, and it was the heresy known as Gnosticism. Silent G at the beginning, Gnosticism, and it was prevalent in the, in the time of the early church. And there's a secular version of it today, and there's a Christian version of it today. So this idea of uh, this ancient um, teaching of Gnosticism essentially said that, that what matters most is the parts of you that cannot be seen. So your spiritual life is important and will live forever, but your body and the material creation in general are actually dirty and, and ought to be devalued. And so the ultimate, your ultimate hope is one day being evacuated from this earth so that you can be released from this filthy bodily material existence. And as I said, that this is an ancient heresy, but it's alive and well today in new forms. And there's a secular version, and there's a Christian version. The secular version of Gnosticism says that what defines you, what's most fundamentally you, has nothing to do with your body. Your, Your body is irrelevant to who you really are and who you want to be. Your body is a mere shell, a container for the real you. I want to commend to you a book, a recent book published by Crossway and written by Sam Albury titled, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies. How the gospel is good news for our physical selves. When we think about The body, we often think about the spiritual body of Christ, which is right. But we don't so often think about the Bible's implications for our physical bodies. Sam does a good job in that book unfolding some of those entailments. Our verse, interestingly enough, Colossians 1.18, is talking both about the spiritual body of Christ... He is the head over the church, over his body, the church. And it's talking about physical bodily existence. Jesus was the firstborn of the dead, and you will come after him. He was the firstborn, but he's not the last. We need guidance here because we live in an age that is confused when it comes to the body, an age that waffles back and forth between two seemingly contradictory things body denial, right, my body is irrelevant to who I am, and body obsession. My body is the most important thing about me. Do you feel the whiplash? Body denial and body obsession. Contra against the Gnostics, your body is not irrelevant to who you are. Your biological sex, for example, is not irrelevant To who you are. And contra much of the fashion and self-care industry, your body is also not the most important thing about you. But I mentioned there's a Christian version as well, and that is the prevailing idea in, in some circles that our ultimate hope is evacuation from this earth, not the restoration of this earth. That Our eternal future as Christians is going to be one long exercise in boredom because we're just going to be sitting on clouds with harps and chubby angels, and it's going to be this disembodied existence. The Bible crashes into that misunderstanding and says, absolutely not. When Jesus rose from the dead, friends, he was not a phantom. He showed his scars to Thomas. He cooked and ate fish on a beach. And our ultimate hope is that one day he will return. He will split the skies and come back to gather, redeem sinners, and remake this world. That's, right. That's why the scriptures picture our future home in concrete, material terms. A new heavens and a new heaven earth. We won't be floating around with golden harps and chubby angels. We'll be running and working and playing and singing and laughing and dancing and resting and reveling in the wonders of an endlessly good and beautiful God. See, when we think about the resurrection It's not so much that it was the suspension. When Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't just that it was the suspension of the natural order. There's a sense in which it was a little mini preview of the restoration of the natural order. The way things were always meant to be before sin and the way things one day will be. The resurrection doesn't just give you hope for the future. It gives you hope from the future because what happened in on that first Easter morning was that the future broke back into the present so that in the resurrection we have the presence now of the future. A a Christian there's a very real sense in which a Christian is in heaven while on earth is in the future while in the present. We have the spark of the age to come that has been lit in our hearts. In one day, it will become a blaze of glory when Jesus returns to make all things new. As Sam Albury puts it in that book, he says it really well when, when we think about this tension between, okay, this new creation reality that Jesus has already launched that's alive in our hearts and the fact that we so struggle in this bodily existence. Albury says, we are running new creation software on old creation hardware. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is, not he will be, he is, you are already a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That spark of the age to come is already flickering in you. And do you know how powerful that spark is? The very power that got the Son of God up from the dead and that will one day get you up from the dead and that will one day remake this material world that will put death and sadness and decay to flight, that very power is what's in you right now, residing in you, giving you the power to fight sin and the hope to make it to the end. This should flood our hearts with hope because we are living in that in-between time, that time between the times where life is full of sickness and sadness and decay and deterioration and death. But that is not the final word. As we attend funerals in this life, we can know that one day we will attend the one funeral we really want to attend, and that's the funeral of sin and death. When Jesus returns to welcome us home and remake the world, he is the beginning of this new creation, the firstborn from the dead. And number three and finally, he is... The pinnacle of all things, the king of the church. He's he's the king of the church. He is the pioneer of the new creation and the pinnacle of all things. Look there at that final phrase that in everything he might be preeminent. This is a purpose statement. This is the reason why all of this other stuff is the case, so that in everything he might be preeminent. So in in, in verses 15 to 17, which you thought about last week, the primacy, the supremacy of Jesus was a given. Here, it's an achievement. Both are true. Jesus has always, as the second person of the eternal trinity, always enjoyed creator rights he he over his creation his primacy his being first place in all things was a given but this is telling us it was also an achievement maybe you you may think of the very beginning of romans 1 which says that he was declared to be the son of god in power by his resurrection of the dead his resurrection didn't make him the son his resurrection proved he was Think of even more, uh, more well-known, another creed or Christ him in the Bible, Philippians chapter 2, which makes it clear that he left his throne of glory, he was humiliated, he became obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross, and therefore, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the question is not if you will bow your knee to Jesus, it's when. You can either bow to him as Savior now or bow to him as judge later, but one day you will bow to this King of glory. The resurrection brought a new preeminence that Jesus didn't previously have in regard to his human nature. This is actually the first time that the word, or I should say the only time, that the word preeminent appears in your Bible in the New Testament. It's a word, and maybe some translations will say that he might have first place in everything. It's a word that is indicating unparalleled importance, supreme superiority, unimpeachable authority. It's not just a statement about chronology. He was the first to be raised with a glorified body. It's a statement about hierarchy. He is at the pinnacle of everything. All things are subjected to his sway. Now again, think about the context. The Colossians were arguing that ultimate spiritual experience could be found in places in addition to Jesus. Paul is saying no. Not that in some things he might be preeminent. Not that in most things he might be preeminent. Paul is speaking comprehensively, universally, saying the only source of life for the body, the only way you are going to find true spiritual fulfillment in your life is by making Christ central in everything you think, love, and do. He must be first. He must be first place. He actually loves you too much to settle for anything less. He knows you were made for him to be first. And so for him to, him to tolerate you putting him second or third in any area of your life would be unloving of him. You were designed to orbit around him. He must be first in your career. First in your marriage. First in your relationships of any kind parenting, friendship, whatever the case may be. He must be first in your private life, first in your public life, first in your church involvement, first in your leisure, your recreation. He's interested in every square inch of your life. The one who flung the stars into space and who spoke the galaxies into existence. We're talking resumes. He is overqualified to only be in charge of one or two little areas of your life. He loves you too much to leave you in charge of an existence you didn't design. And so his preeminence, here's here's the thing. Satan wants to slither in to your mind and heart and whisper to you a lie. He wants to whisper to you that verse 18 of Colossians 1 is a threat to your joy. Did God really say that he must be preeminent in all things? Come on. Sounds like that guy's on a power trip. You can handle things just fine yourself. No. His preeminence in every area of your life, every nook and cranny of your life, even those areas that no one in this room knows about yet because you haven't yet had the courage and the integrity to confess it and to bring it into the light. Every area of your life, his preeminence is not a threat to your joy. It's the secret to your joy. It's the secret. Things only make sense. Life only makes sense when Jesus is at the center. Well, in conclusion, I, it's not lost on me that there are three Christmas trees behind me and that we, this is an Advent series. We've talked a lot about Easter stuff, but Advent is not disconnected from Easter. Cradle, cross, crown, as they say, the one who was preeminent in glory. What we're celebrating in Advent is that is that, that one left his throne of glory for you. He, he, he wanted to share this eternal joy that he had experienced with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He wanted to bring others in Not because he was lacking. The incarnation was not a filling up. It was a spilling out of an overflow of love in the heart of God. And the one thing he didn't have in eternity past was you. He, He left it all. He had it all. He had it all, but he didn't have you. And so he left it all in order for us to be swept up into this story that is greater than we could ever imagine. And don't miss the fact that the first Adam, in that first creation, fell in a garden. And we all fell with him. But the second Adam, the last Adam, the firstborn from the dead, was raised in a garden to undo the effects of the curse and to blaze that trail for all of us who follow in his way through repentance and faith. This Christmas, as I said earlier, we're celebrating not a nice, decorative, sentimental holiday. We are celebrating an invasion where in the person of Jesus, heaven came to earth and the future broke back into the present. In the kingdom that he inaugurated, and he lived and he died in the place of sinners, and he rose triumphant over the grave so that anyone who puts their trust in him, no matter who you are or what you've done, if you simply come to Jesus with empty hands, not with a resume, he has the only resume that is relevant in this conversation. You need to shred your moral and spiritual resume, leave it on the floor, You need to actually run away, not just from your heap of bad works, you need to run from your heap of good works, and you need to run into the arms of Christ. He came to save sinners like you, and He will happily and gladly if you trust Him. And one day, one day, that new creation software is going to be matched with new creation hardware, and you're going to be given a resurrected body fit for a resurrected earth so that you can forever enjoy the wonders of your triune God. So the greatest threat to Christmas this year is not consumerism. The greatest threat to Christmas is not secularism. It's our own boredom with the most magnificent story ever told. May he be preeminent in our own hearts amid all the hustle and bustle and distractions of this Christmas season. And may Winston take notice as they watch a church with the spark of the age to come lit within it, pointing the way home. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you for being first place in all things, and we pray you would be first place in our hearts, in our affections, in our habits, in our lives, until the day when we too rise again with resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth and enjoy you forever. In the meantime, help us not to settle for anything less because you are overqualified to only govern one or two areas of our lives. Help us, God, to live in submission to you and we praise you that you are a good and beautiful king. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.